Our steadfast Palestinian people, the Arab and Islamic nations, the free peoples worldwide and those who advocate for freedom, justice, and human dignity in the light of the ongoing Israeli aggression on the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And as our people continue their battle for independence, dignity, and breaking free from the longest ever occupation during which they have drawn the finest displays of bravery, heroism, and confronting the Israeli murder machine and aggression. We would like to clarify to our people and the free peoples of the world the reality of what happened on October 7th the motives behind its general context related to the Palestinian cause, as well as a refutation to the Israeli allegations and to put the facts into perspective. What I just read is the opening address of a document titled Our Narrative, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, recently released by the Hamas political party media office. This important publication has offered the world a message directly from the Palestinian resistance, and it clearly defines the motivations and demands of the group as a powerful counterpoint to the mass misinformation being propagated by Western media platforms. On this episode of the Resistance Report, we're going to be reading from this document and discussing the information that is outlined in its various sections. The document was released in the English language, it's easily accessible, and we urge our listeners to read it for yourselves. The first section is titled, Why Al-Aqsa Flood? And it provides seven subsections. One, point one reminds the world that the battle of the Palestinian people against occupation and colonialism did not start on October 7, but 105 years ago including 30 years of British colonialism and 75 years of Zionist occupation. Indeed, at the end of World War I, when the British claimed territories formerly administered by the Ottoman Empire, Palestinians owned upwards of 98% of the land. The little land that was not under Palestinian control was sold off to the Zionists in Europe by the Ottoman Empire without the consent of Palestinians. Through 30 years of Zionist mass immigration campaigns, an additional 4% of the land was secured by the Zionists prior to the 1948 Nekbe, but Palestinians still represented 92% of the population. However, in 1948, when Israel declared its existence, it was at the direct cost of denying Palestinians their right to self-determination. Through a mass ethnic cleansing campaign involving terrorist paramilitary groups, the Zionists seized 77% of the Palestinian land and expelled 57% of the Palestinian people. Over 500 villages were completely destroyed, and dozens of massacres were carried out. Israeli aggression did not stop in 1948. In 1967, Israel occupied the rest of Palestine, including the West Bank, the capital of Palestine, Jerusalem, and continued to occupy land in the surrounding Arab countries. The second point emphasized, quote, over these long decades, the Palestinian people suffered all forms of oppression, injustice, expropriation of their fundamental rights, and apartheid policies. Let us look at Gaza, where its residents have suffered since 2007. They have not just been disconnected from their fellow Palestinians and the rest of their homeland, but isolated from the entire world by a suffocating 17-year-long military blockade. And whilst trapped in their open-air prison, Gaza has suffered from countless sieges by the belligerent Israeli state and its military, 
Even actions of collective civil disobedience, like the 2018 Great March of Return, when residents peacefully marched towards the separation barrier that holds them captive demanding the end of the blockade, their humanitarian rights and the right of return have been met with brutal Israeli force. 360 residents were murdered at that time, and over 19,000 were injured, including 5,000 children. The third point continues to elucidate the scale of Palestinian losses. From the year 2000 to 2023, over 11,200 Palestinians have been murdered and over 156,000 have been injured. The great majority of these have been civilians. But just in the last three months, an additional 28,000 have been killed and over 68,000 have been injured. All the while, self-proclaimed international moral police like the U.S. have watched these atrocities unfold and not only provided cover for Israeli aggression, they have actively funded its military apparatus with billions of dollars. Since October 7th, we have witnessed how, as typical, the U.S. only lamented Israeli losses and blindly stepped in line between Israeli allegations of civilians being attacked by the Palestinian resistance without lifting a finger to seek out the truth. The U.S. has provided the political and financial backing for Israel's campaign of brutality against the Gaza Strip and has ignored the mass killing of Palestinian people. Point 4 directs our attention to how Israeli brutality and violations have been documented by the UN and international human rights organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, as well as Israeli human rights organizations. The testimonies have all been ignored, and Israel has yet to be held accountable. Israeli representatives to the UN have long since shown the world their blatant disregard for the UN and the international human rights community, such as when Israeli ambassador to the UN, Gilad Erdin, tore up a report by the UN Human Rights Council and threw it into the dustbin during a general assembly in October of 2021. Yet, he was still appointed to the position of vice president of the general assembly in the following year. Point 5 highlights how the US and its Western allies have always treated Israel as a state that is above the law. They've always provided Israel with the political cover to maintain the occupation and oppress the Palestinian people, allowing it to exploit the situation, to confiscate more land, and also exclusively Judaize the universally diverse holy sites of Palestine. The UN has issued more than 900 resolutions over the past 75 years in favor of the Palestinian people. However, Israel has refused to abide by any of them, and U.S. veto in the U.N. Security Council has prevented any material condemnation of Israel's violation and illegal policies. As such, the U.S. and other Western countries are seen as complicit and as partners in the Israeli occupation, in its crimes, and in the prolonged suffering of the Palestinian people. Point 6 critiques the ill-named peaceful settlement process, asserting that despite the stipulation of an independent Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza outlined in the 1993 Oslo Accords signed by the PLO, Israel has systematically obliterated every possibility of establishing a state through a wide campaign of illegal settlement construction and Judaization of Palestinian lands in the West Bank and Jerusalem. After 30 years, the supporters of the quote peace process have realized that they have reached an impasse and that this process has had catastrophic effects on the Palestinian people. Israeli officials have continually and openly voiced their complete rejection of the establishment of a Palestinian state, 
This was best exemplified by Benjamin Netanyahu's intimidating display at the UN General Assembly just one month before Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, when he displayed a map of what he called the New Middle East, portraying Israel as extending from the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, completely engulfing the West Bank and Gaza. Attendees were silent in their arrogance and indifference towards Palestinian human rights. The last point, seven, asks readers what they would expect for Palestinians to do after 75 years of a relentless occupation and suffering, after denial of liberation and return for our people, after the disastrous results of the so-called peace process. It asks readers to consider how else should the Palestinian people respond? How should the Palestinian people respond to the Judaization plans for Al-Aqsa, the division and partition attempts, and the increases of incursions of extremist settlers into the Holy Mosque compound, to the de facto annexation of the West Bank by far-right Israeli extremists? How should the Palestinians respond to Palestinian prisoners being abused and deprived of their basic human rights and humiliated under the policies of the fascist Israeli minister Itamar Ben-Gavir? How should we respond to the unjust 17-year air, sea, and land blockade of Gaza? to the unending expansion of Israeli settlements and the constant violence by settlers against Palestinian people and property, to the 7 million Palestinian refugees living in horrible conditions, and to the Palestinians and their descendants who were expelled 75 years ago and all have the right to return, and lastly, to the failure of the international community to establish a Palestinian state and the complicity of the Western superpowers in preventing that state. The section ends asking the reader, What was expected from the Palestinian people after all that? To keep waiting and to keep counting on the helpless UN? Or to take the initiative in defending the Palestinian people, lands, rights, and sanctities, knowing that the Defense Act is a right enshrined in international laws, norms, and conventions? I want to end by saying that October 7th should indeed be seen as the most normal response. The title of this document is apt, Our Narrative. Because for far too long, the narrative and all official accounts are almost exclusively the right of the West, which has emboldened Israel. The narrative that is told is always depicting Palestinians as unprovoked attackers. It is always portraying the settlers as victims, despite their immense financial and military backing from the empires of the West, and despite the installations of systems of mass oppression that they benefit from. The Israeli Western narrative is always pinning time zeros occurring just after some substantial Palestinian dispossession and conveniently has no historical memory of the decades of its oppression. To those who wish to distract the discourse around a colonized people's right to defend themselves, I say it is important to not discount any loss of life nor downplay when a colonized people rises up in resistance and anger. And it is fundamentally important and essential that we recognize the structural oppression that is always occurring that demands resistance. The Palestinian people are entitled the right to self-defense by international law and conventions. The same laws that Western allies proclaim that they defend in their countless self-serving military exploitations around the world. It is only white supremacy, racism, colonialism, imperialism, and ethno-supremacy that dares to deny the Palestinian and Arab people of their right of resistance. So we are going to be delving into the events of October 7th, as well as the fabricated claims by Israel. On October 7th, 
Operation Al-Aqsa Flood targeted the Israeli military sites and sought to arrest the enemy's soldiers to pressure on the Israeli authorities to release thousands of Palestinians held in Israeli jails through a prisoner exchange deal. Therefore, the operation focused on destroying the Israeli army's Gaza division, the Israeli military site stationed near the settlements around Gaza. Point two, avoiding harm to civilians, especially children, women, and the elderly people, is a religious and moral commitment by all the Al-Qassam Brigade's fighters. We reiterate the Palestinian resistance was fully disciplined and committed to the Islamic values during the operation that the Palestinian fighters only targeted the occupation soldiers and those who carried weapons against our people. In the meantime, the Palestinian fighters were keen to avoid harming civilians, despite the fact that the resistance does not possess precise weapons. In addition, if there were any cases of targeting civilians, it happened accidentally and in the course of the confrontation with the occupation's forces. So these first two points specifically discuss the targets of the Gazan resistance, which were not meant to be civilians, but were meant to be military prisoners. And as discussed on earlier episodes of the resistance report, the reason why there is this focus on military prisoners is because military prisoners net more in return than civilians, right? So we saw the first prisoner exchange happened where like 240 Palestinians were released only for 100 Israeli captives with these soldiers, that like that number is likely to go into the thousands. Another thing to consider is that when, after probes were done of the um, October 7th attack, it was seen that a number of Israeli settlers in the settlements around Gaza were armed and clashed with Palestinian fighters on October 7th. These settlers were registered as civilians by Israel, while the fact is that they were armed men fighting alongside the Israeli army. Historically, the resistance had a very negative view regarding the necessity of civilian deaths and have wanted to avoid it by all means necessary. In 1994, Hamas called for a cessation of all hostilities towards civilians by both sides, and Israel refused to engage with it in any way. Also, when speaking about Israeli civilians, it must be noted that conscription applies to all Israelis above the age of 18. Males serve 32 months of military service, and females serve 24 months. All of them carry and can use arms, and this is based on the Israeli security theory of an armed people, which turned the Israeli entity into an army with a country attached. Also, as attested to by many, the Hamas movement dealt in a positive and kind manner with all civilians who have been held in Gaza, and sought from the earliest days of the aggression to release them. Good luck. Bye-bye. We go home. Bye. On to the second section of this chapter, evidence against Israeli allegations. Let's start with the 40 beheaded babies claim. Stomach turning reports of being babies being killed. It's an act of sheer evil. It has been firmly refuted, the lie of the 40 beheaded babies by the Palestinian fighters, and even Israeli sources have denied this lie. Many of the Western media agencies unfortunately adopted this allegation and have promoted it. The earliest example of this was Joe Biden getting up in front of the American nation and saying that he had personally seen pictures of babies being beheaded. Biden's staffers themselves, on the day this speech went out or aired, told Biden that they could not confirm that these 40 beheaded babies were a real thing, they had not seen pictures, and that the only thing that they were operating off of was Netanyahu's word. And he refused to verify the authenticity of these reports and reported it anyway. Another fabrication that has been made against Palestinian resistance fighters is the claim of mass rape against Israeli women. 
This has been fully denied by the Hamas movement and the resistance. A report by El Mondois News website on December 1st, 2023, among many others, said that there is a lack of any evidence of mass rape allegedly perpetrated by the resistance on October 7th, and that such an allegation has been used by Israel to fuel a genocide in Gaza. And for us to understand this, it is important to understand the colonial history of this trope, that brown and black men are rapists, savages, hell-bent on violating white women. Let's discuss this history a little bit more. In America, it is known some of the highest profile cases of this are specifically Emmett Till, uh, which was a case where a white woman claimed that a young black boy, who crazy enough just to place this in history and in time, Fred Hampton used to babysit as a kid, whistled at her. This woman has admitted to falsifying her claim, did not stop the town from lynching this boy. In 1917 in America, there was the Tulsa Race Massacre, where a 19-year-old black boy was accused of assaulting a white woman in an elevator. White supremacist mobs from the city spent two days burning the city down, imprisoning 6,000 black residents of Tulsa in large facilities. Another example of this historically is in India. Every time there would be an uprising against British colonialism historically, claims of gangs of Indian men raping British women would be used to excuse their atrocities. This also gave way to the trope in British romance novels of the imperial era, where either it would be British men being tricked by seductive Indian women or Indian men defiling white women. And more generally, Edward Said, Palestinian-American academic, specifically discusses this in his work Orientalism. I don't recommend reading it on your own just because it is an unbelievably dense piece, but most folks who do like international relations in school or any kind of like post-colonial study do have to go over Orientalism. So Edward Said discusses how European exploration and control of other lands was often portrayed romantically, describing it as the penetration of untouched territories taken over by the strong masculinity of colonial forces. This romanticized view, however, wasn't just talked, it translated into the actual abuse of Native women by white colonial masters. The discourse around this portrayed Native women as seductive and exotic, justifying their mistreatment. Additionally, there was a fear of white women being violated by Native men, justifying increased colonial surveillance and control. This power dynamic also influenced relationships between men and women in the imperial core, shaping them in the context of empire. This is why the Western world demands an intervention when claims of rape come from the Israeli side, with no evidence, mind you, and no victims, while Palestinian prisoners can discuss widespread sexual abuse and detail it, as well as Israeli soldiers, whether it be from 1948, admitting proudly that they committed rape in the original Nekba, or IDF soldiers currently documenting themselves rifling through women's belongings in Gaza. So I'm going through these terrorist houses, and every single house inside of Gaza, this is what I say, every single, unbelievable. It's the most uh, uh, exotic laundry that you can imagine, just piled out of it. Further proof that these claims have been fabricated include video clips taken on the day of October 7th, along with testimonies by Israelis themselves that were released later, showing that Al Qassam Brigade's fighters didn't target civilians, and many Israelis were specifically killed by the Israeli army and police. Inside this, this, uh, this house were another 15 burned people, among them eight babies. But well, why is the destruction then? I'm sorry, why, why is the destruction? This destruction it, it looks like a more was like a... a cause of our tanks um, attack. Then we need to uh, to conquer back. Okay. It couldn't be happened without the tanks. 
That is the voice of an Israeli tank commander discussing destroying Israeli homes on purpose, specifically targeting houses where there were hostages inside. Another report that came from October 7th was the Nova Music Festival near Gaza, where an Israeli military helicopter targeting both Hamas fighters and festival participants resulted in the death of 364 Israeli civilians. The Israeli army reportedly conducted over 300 strikes in surrounding areas to prevent further infiltrations from Gaza. Additionally, there are claims that Israeli raids and operations killed Israeli captives and their captors with the use of the Hannibal Directive, specifically so that they can avoid prisoner swaps. Standard Israeli army procedure forbids soldiers from firing in the direction of their colleagues, but the Hannibal Directive allows for this order to be suspended. The aim is to prevent Israeli troops from falling into enemy hands in order to leave no scope for negotiation. The occupation authorities have revised their casualty count as well, attributing 200 burnt corpses to Palestinian fighters mixed with Israeli corpses. The report suggests that the Israeli army is implicated in the actions described. However, Israel has refused to investigate the death count from October 7th fully, saying it would be morally unsound, according to Israeli sources, as Israeli bombardments killed so many civilians then, as well as following, in Gaza, 60 Israeli captives have been killed due to direct aerial bombardments by the Israeli government. Those who defend the Israeli aggression do not look at the events in an objective manner, but rather go to justify the Israeli mass killing of civilians by saying that there has to be casualties when attacking the resistance. However, they would not use such assumptions when it comes to the Al-Aqsa flood events. The death toll in Gaza is now more than 25,000. That's according to the Hamas-run Gaza Ministry of Health. Why can the Western world respond to 1,000 dead, the majority of which were military, and were engaged within accordance of international law, with an indiscriminate bombing of 30,000 people killed and close to 100,000 injured? 136 children have been killed a day. In nine days, Palestinian children outnumber the amount of settler military dead on October 7th. Moving on to the next section, towards a transparent international investigation. I'm going to take a slightly different approach to this section, as the day this is being recorded is the day after the ICJ has announced that there is enough evidence of genocidal actions to continue the trial against Israel and announce certain provisional measures. These measures say that Israel has to take action to prevent genocidal actions taking place against Palestinians. Since this ruling has come out, 174 Gazans were murdered, and the court has still not called for a ceasefire. In retaliation to the court's findings, Israel put out a claim with no evidence per usual that 12 UN employees out of the 30,000 person strong operation in Gaza participated in certain activities on October 7th. In response, Western countries, including the US, Germany, Switzerland, the UK, and more, have suspended all funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, commonly referred to as UNRWA. UNRWA provides medicine, food, and education for about 6 million Palestinian refugees in camps in Gaza, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. I think it's essential to point out once again the hypocrisy of the Western nations, providing Israel with anything it needs after all of the self-documented crimes committed by Zionist soldiers. Are they really telling the world that out of the 600,000 IDF soldiers Israel has, 12 of them have not committed genuine atrocities against humanity? 
we do not need to speculate when they are happy to admit on TikTok that they are hunting for Palestinian children. So why has the Western world still offered weapons with absolutely no conditions? I do not see soldiers. I see a pride of hungry lions. Let me tell you a promise, gentlemen. It is hunt season in Gaza. <laughs> and you will all be well fed before we Thanks, Abdullah, for that. Let's continue on to the last two sections of the document. Section 4 is titled, quote, A Reminder, Who is Hamas? And it provides the world with a direct explanation of Hamas's existential charter and the objectives to counteract the suppressed and or manipulated information that individuals around the world receive about the political party. For this reason, I want to read directly from the document. 1. The Islamic Resistance Movement, Hamas, is a Palestinian Islamic National Liberation and Resistance Movement. Its goal is to liberate Palestine and confront the Zionist project. Its frame of reference is Islam, which determines its principles, objectives, and means. Hamas rejects the persecution of any human being on nationalist, religious, or sectarian grounds. 2. Hamas affirms that its conflict is with the Zionist project, not with the Jewish people because of their religion. Hamas does not wage a struggle against Jewish people because they are Jewish, but wages a struggle against the Zionists who occupy Palestine. Yet, it is the Zionists who constantly identify Judaism and the Jewish people with their own colonial project and illegal entity. 3. The Palestinian people have always stood against oppression, injustice, and the committing of massacres against civilians regardless of who committed them. And based on our religious and moral values, we clearly stated our rejection to what the Jews were exposed to by the Nazi Germany. Here, we remind that what was called the Jewish problem, in essence, was a European problem. While the Arab and Islamic environment was, across history, a safe haven to the Jewish people and to other peoples of other beliefs and ethnicities. The Arab and Islamic environment was an example of coexistence, cultural interaction, and religious freedoms. The current conflict is caused by the Zionist aggressive behavior and its alliance with the Western colonial powers. Therefore, we reject the exploitation of the Jewish suffering in Europe to justify the oppression against our people in Palestine. The Hamas movement, according to international laws and norms, is a national liberation movement that has clear goals and missions. It gets its legitimacy to resist the occupation from the Palestinian right to self-defense, liberation, and self-determination. Hamas has always been keen to restrict its fight and resistance with the Israeli occupation on the occupied Palestinian territory. Yet, the Israeli occupation did not abide by that and committed massacres and killings against the Palestinians outside Palestine. 5. We stress that resisting the occupation with all means, including the armed resistance, is a legitimized right by all norms, divine religions, the international laws, including the Geneva Conventions and its first additional protocol, and the related UN resolutions. For example, the UN General Assembly Resolution 3236, adopted by the 29th session of the General Assembly on November 22, 1974, which affirmed the inalienable rights of the Palestinian people in Palestine, including the right to self-determination and the right to return to, quote, their homes and property from where they were expelled, displaced, and uprooted. last section lays out for the world what is needed for actual change in the status quo to be witnessed. The section eloquently opens, quote, occupation is occupation no matter how it describes or names itself. 
This is true. An occupation is used to break the will of an occupied people so that the occupier can continue to exist unchecked. The document asks readers to look throughout history and acknowledge that resistance has always been the only strategic route available for a people to liberate themselves. It follows that on humanitarian, ethical, and legal grounds, the nations of the world must support the resistance of the Palestinian people and not collude against it. Basic human decency requires that all the free people of the world confront the aggression and crimes of the occupation and to support the Palestinian people in their struggle to liberate their lands and obtain their right to self-determination, a right afforded to other people around the world. In closing, the Hamas document makes eight clear calls to the international community. 1. The immediate halt of the Israeli aggression on the Gaza Strip, including the ethnic cleansing of the entire Gazan population. Also, the opening of crossings to allow the entry of humanitarian aid into Gaza, which must also include reconstruction materials and tools. 2. The Israeli occupation must be held accountable in a legal, material way for the mass suffering of the Palestinian people. Israel must be charged for its violent crimes against civilians, its destruction of infrastructure, hospitals, churches, mosques, and educational facilities. 3. The support of Palestinian resistance to confront the illegal Israeli occupation by all possible means as ordained and legitimized by international laws and norms. 4. For all free people across the globe, especially those nations who have been colonized and can relate to the Palestinian people, to take substantial and effective positions against the double standard policies adopted by the entities who support Israeli occupation. This includes a call for these nations to initiate a global solidarity movement with the Palestinian people, emphasizing the values of justice and equality and the right of every human to live in freedom and dignity. 5. The global superpowers, especially the U.S., the U.K., and France, stop shielding the Zionist entity from accountability and to stop treating it as a country above the law. This unjust ethical and moral immunity has allowed the Israeli occupation to commit heinous crimes against the Palestinian people, their land, and its sanctities for over 75 years. Countries across the globe are urged to uphold their responsibility towards international law and the relevant U.N. resolutions that call for ending the occupation. 6. Categorical rejection of any international or Israeli projects that aim to decide the future of Gaza, but in actuality prolong the occupation. The Palestinian people have the capacity to decide their own future and to arrange their internal affairs. No party in the world has the right to impose any form of guardianship on the Palestinian people or decide on their behalf. 7. Standing against the Israeli attempts to enact another wave of expulsion or a new Nekbe, especially in the lands occupied in 1948 in the West Bank. There must be no expulsion to the Sinai or Jordan or any other place. If there is any relocation of Palestinians, it will only be towards their homes and the areas they were expelled from in 1948, as affirmed by many UN resolutions. 8. Maintaining popular pressure around the world until the occupation is ended. Attempts at normalization with Israel must be opposed, and a comprehensive boycott of the Israeli occupation and its backers must be upheld. With this, I want to pass back to Abdullah for some analysis on the current status of the resistance and the occupation forces after four months of siege. After four months under siege, you might be asking yourself, what is the position of the resistance? In order to understand this, we have to understand the military goals of the Israeli side and the resistance. First, 
Israel's stated military goals at the beginning of the conflict included the elimination of Hamas, which far-right Zionist minister of finance, Yoel Smotrich, stated on the 23rd of January that the achievement of freeing the captives and then defeating Hamas is akin to science fiction. War cabinet minister Gadi Eisenkot said that an absolute defeat of Hamas is not a realistic objective, saying, there is a reason why we should not tell stories. Today, the situation already in the Gaza Strip is such that the goals of war have not yet been achieved. Another goal of the Israeli side was to return all of their hostages. So far, we have seen that Hamas has released 105 settlers for 240 Palestinians. Israel has killed at least 60 of their own hostages through aerial bombardment, as well as other stories, for example, of them shooting three of them at point-blank range while they were shirtless and carrying a white flag. The last military goal on the Israeli side was the guarantee that Gaza will never again pose a threat to Israel. We can see, however, that the liberal opposition within Israel has gotten to a point where they are running on a platform saying that the current government is unable to function and pursue these goals, and that if they were elected, that they would bring a war to an end for a hostage deal swap ASAP. So we have every Zionist politician from the far right to left saying it is impossible to achieve their military goals in Gaza, as well as calling for the resignation and oftentimes imprisonment of Netanyahu, the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. We have his opposition leader responding to the desire of the settler masses to end the conflicts and cede to the resistance. Now when it comes to the resistance's war goals, it's important to be more aware of general guerrilla warfare tactics. So we will be using Che Guevara's guerrilla warfare to explain a little bit more of what we should be looking at and what we should be considering. First, when it comes to the tactics of how a guerrilla warfare band or troop conducts itself, Che Guevara says, hit and run, wait, lie in ambush, again, hit and run, and thus repeatedly without ever giving any rest to the enemy. There is in all of this, it would appear, a negative quality, an attitude of retreat, of avoiding frontal fights. However, this is consequent upon the general strategy of guerrilla warfare, which is the same in its ultimate end as in any warfare, to win, to annihilate the enemy. Thus, it is clear that guerrilla warfare is a phase that does not afford itself opportunities to arrive at complete victory. It is one of the initial phases of warfare and will develop continuously until the guerrilla army in its steady growth acquires the characteristics of a regular army. At that moment, it will be ready to deal final blows to the enemy and to achieve victory. Triumph will always be the product of a regular army, even though its origins are in a guerrilla army. The Palestinian resistance at this point is not taking on the form of a regular army. However, we have been seeing more and more movements towards that. It can be understood that they are still guerrilla combatants because of the fact that, you know, when you look at footage released by the resistance, we see men in Adidas tracksuits and sandals running up to Israeli tanks and placing bombs by hand in their treads. So we can see that at this point in time, the resistance has not formed itself a cohesive regular army structure. It is still very much relying on essentially like the boys and men of Gaza who are willing to take up arms and fight for their safety and fight for their land, right? 
Che Guevara goes on to say that the fundamental characteristic of a guerrilla band is mobility. This permits it in a few minutes to move far from a specific theater and in a few hours far even from the region if that becomes necessary. It permits it to constantly change front and avoid any type of encirclement. As the circumstances of the war require, the guerrilla band can dedicate itself exclusively to fleeing from an encirclement, which is the enemy's only way of forcing the band into a decisive fight that could be unfavorable. This mobility is reified by the indigenous connection of Palestinians to their land and culture. So for example, we can see this in how they counteract Israeli surveillance. Gaza specifically is the testing ground for most surveillance and weapons systems that go on the market. So if you are, for example, speaking over a walkie-talkie, it's very likely that what you're saying is going to get picked up by the enemy. So you have two options, handwrite messages and have couriers go between groups or talk in a code that only locals would understand. For example, using slang that only native Gazan speakers could understand or referring to folks in their communities by their nicknames like Abu Fareh, father of the chickens or Bayabatikh, the watermelon seller, beating their technology with the simplest and cheapest of means. In Algeria, this was also used in a different way, where to maintain the anonymity of their cadres, they employed a recruitment system where anybody involved in the organization only knew two other people, the person who recruited them and gave them a mission, and any person that they might have recruited. This makes it nearly impossible for the French settler population of the time to effectively surveil that movement. Now that we have some general context as to how guerrilla warfare works, we can discuss the resistance's war goals. Firstly, a prisoner exchange for the majority of Palestinian prisoners. This is becoming discussed as a necessity by Israeli pundits more and more every day as touched on earlier. This increases the legitimacy of the resistance as the vanguard of the Palestinian people. The prisoners that are being released by the resistance are not in Gaza, they are in the West Bank. This also allows the replenishment of leaders and guerrilla fighters for the resistance. For example, Hamas's Yahya Sanwar, who was Hamas's chief in the Gaza Strip and led the October 7th operation, was released in 2011 from the Gilad Shalit prisoner exchange. The general secretary, Ahmed Sadat, of the PFLP has been in prison since 2008. Marwan Berghouti, a legendary Fath militant who is critical of the normalizing faction within the group. This also incentivizes the resistance to do more of these operations as it sets precedent for negotiations of this type working. Another goal of the resistance was specifically the end of the siege on Gaza. In 2021, during Seif al-Quds, the resistance made clear that they had plans to break the siege on Gaza, and everybody thought they were just talking. Now Yemen has blockaded Israel from the Red Sea, and the Iraqi resistance has just declared that they are planning on blockading Israel from navigating the Mediterranean Sea. This goes to show that the resistance still has cards in its hands that it has not played yet. Before the Iraqi resistance announced this, nobody could have predicted them taking this step. The West has consistently underestimated the capabilities of the resistance to their own detriment. This episode is running kind of long, so we are planning on covering Yemen, Iraq, Iran, and the more general geopolitical situation in the next episode. Specifically, we'll be bringing on communists of Yemen, a Marxist this group that is based in Yemen, to kind of discuss this stuff more generally, so please do stay tuned for that. And before we finish the episode, we just lastly wanted to do a section, me and Haidar, on just saying a few words to honor the martyrs in our lives. We commit to doing everything possible to make sure that their martyrdom will not be in vain. We know that making our identities and credentials kind of opaque is not ideal, but with the current state of surveillance, the communities under our hands are tied. We hope this window into how the conflict has affected us 
can help elucidate the fact that it does not matter who we are specifically outside of the fact that we are Palestinian diaspora experiencing the ramifications of imperialism who hope to help others involved in our struggle, just like so many of you listening right now. I felt the need to highlight these martyrs due to their proximity to my life. When I was eight years old, a Gazan family moved into my neighborhood in central Jersey. Through the mosque, I ended up becoming best friends with their son, Enes, who was my age. He had three sisters who were seven, three, and two years old. We were about eight years old. Those who grew up in the diaspora know that these folks are the closest things that we have to family and are referred to as cousins and their parents as uncles and auntie. At this point in my life, I wasn't aware of my Palestinian heritage at all. My mother, half Egyptian, half Palestinian, had kept it from me until I was about 15 years old. When she was growing up, being Palestinian in Egypt was often difficult. Palestinians were looked down upon through their status as refugees, causing her to leave behind that part of her identity. The first time I ever had Zathar, or really learned about the experience of Palestinians, was in this Gazan family's home. When we were about 12, the family moved up to North Jersey. Since they moved, I had only seen Anas once since we were 17, but I hadn't seen his parents or his sisters. Most recently in December, I called my mother and she told me that she was driving back from the Aza, which is essentially a Muslim version of a wake, for their cousins and uncle, Nuran, Razan, and Ahmed. Anas's little sister posted a recounting of their story of their martyrdom as such. Say their names, Nuran al-Luh, age 12, Razan al-Luh, age 10, Ahmed al-Luh, age 43. Today the world lost three beautiful souls. While my beautiful baby cousins were out filling water from behind their house, an IDF soldier shot and killed them using a high caliber sniper. When my uncle, their father, looked outside the window and saw their dead bodies out on the ground, he spent an hour of what my grandma, who was with him, called psychosis before he ripped the curtains off his windows and went outside to cover their dismembered bodies. He laid down between them and spoke to them until he was shot and killed by Israeli snipers. No matter how hard my grandmother tried, she could not get him to stay inside with their bodies exposed like this. It breaks my heart to know that they will not get a proper burial. It breaks my heart that they were killed in their own homes. My uncle Ahmed lived for his two daughters. We all knew it. And as God willed, he was taken with them. I cannot wrap my mind around their deaths. I was just with them three months ago. They were so beautiful. Remember them, please. Don't forget them. Make du'a for them. I reached out to my friend Ennis, offering my condolences upon hearing the news. And the first thing I heard back from him was a text saying, their martyrdom will not be in vain. When I saw that text, honestly, my blood ran cold. I thought about how when we were in elementary school, we would play Xbox and Wii together. How bittersweet that the child version of him I knew no longer existed. We had grown up too fast. Shortly after, his family came into town for a large Palestine protest that was happening. I was lucky enough to reunite with him and his sisters, who I hadn't seen since they were 12, 7, and 6. Now when I saw them, I saw three grieving women who were 21, 17, and 16, wise beyond their years, discussing the martyrdom of their family and the destruction of everything they had experienced visiting Gaza. All of a sudden, our memories from when we were little hit me. I remembered when we would be on the way home from the amusement park, and his little sisters would stand up in their seats and sing loudly the whole way home while we tried to sleep. I remembered how when I was about 10 years old, his sisters did my makeup and I got in trouble with my family because I posted it on Facebook. I haven't been able to sleep well since we saw each other. I've been trying to grieve the younger, innocent version of these people I used to be so close with. I've been trying to grieve 
who they could have become if they didn't have to go through this trauma. And I'm trying to grieve what our reconnection could have looked like if we didn't have to go through this trauma. Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. I would also like to make a tribute to a martyr that was a friend of mine, and also the first Gaza-based videographer of al Palestinian Media Network. His name was Fuad Abu Hamash. I met Fuad across the globe through digital introductions. He had a passion for documenting his beloved Gaza through the lens of a camera. He was bright and energetic and eager to contribute, however he could. I recall talking to him on video calls while the lights of his family home would flicker due to the poor electricity in Gaza. He would describe his plans for traveling around in the coming week to film a journalistic piece. And when I reacted to the logistic difficulties he'd have to face, he'd respond, anything for Palestine. He repeated that statement to me no less than 20 times in the short year that I knew him. As many journalists in Gaza, Fuad did his best to document the unfolding war crimes at the hands of the occupation, risking his life all the while. Fuad was murdered on January 10th during an Israeli airstrike in Gaza while covering events. I want to honor him now. May his soul rest in power and in peace. I will forever be grateful to have known him and we will always ensure his legacy lives on in Al-Falastinia Media Network. Thank you, Abdullah, for this detailed analysis. And thank you all for listening to this episode of The Resistance Report. We promise to continue covering the movements of the resistance every step of the way and do our best to keep you informed. However, our operations are entirely volunteer-based, and we depend solely on viewer financing to support our work. If you can, please sign up to join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash AFMN. You can also keep up to date with our work and the work of the resistance at our Instagram page at al as well as our Twitter at al See you soon. Thank you for listening. And remember to keep our martyrs in your heart as you hit the streets and resist the occupation wherever you are. In the world.